Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Richard Chataway. A man with a name that is a podcast pun writer's dream, Richard is Vice President of the BVA Nudge Unit UK and founder of the Communication Science Group. One of the most experienced and talented behavioural science practitioners in the world, he's worked in senior strategic roles for the government in Australia and the UK. He's had successful stints at four of the major global communication networks and advised a stellar list of clients, including IKEA, Google, Sainsbury's and Starbucks, whilst he is also the author of The Behaviour Business Book, published in Feb of this year. Richard says, if you are in business, you are in the business of behaviour, and unless a business influences behaviour, it will not succeed. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Right, our quickfire questions then, Richard. So, Mac or PC? Uh, Mac, I think, although... Uh, it's a tricky one because I use both, like most people do, I think. I always view Apple as a marketing company that does tech and the other uh, companies as tech companies that do marketing, if you see what I mean. Wine or beer? Ooh, again, I do like both. Um, <laughs> I'd say first, then wine. <laughs> Marmite or Vegemite? Oh, well, now that is a really hard one because I lived in Australia, so... Um, for a number of years, and, and it's a very sore topic, of, particularly with the Aussie about the difference between the two. I, I, I'm probably going to have to go Vegemite. Um, just, I think on a taste on a taste level, I do prefer it. Rory Sutherland or Richard Shotton? <laughs> no, <laughs> you're giving me some really tough ones here. Cause I, they're both <laughs> friends of mine, um, and uh, and uh, and I and I really uh, like their work. Um, Say both. That's fine. I, I it's unfair. It's, yeah, I think I think it's got to be both. Sorry, <laughs> it's unfair. I, I don't know why we we've asked that a couple of times in the part. I don't know why because I, I hugely admire and like both. Of them, so <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Right, three more: John Walk or Kevin Beatty. Oh well, that, that that's that's obviously a reference to those who aren't uh, fans of seventies uh, and eighties football. Um, that's a reference to my 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 lifelong support of Ipswich Town Football Club. Um, well, the Beat, as he's known, is. is this is the best player ever to play for Ipswich, possibly in the history of football. But maybe I'm biased. <laughs> so I probably, but but Walk is more my era. Um, sadly, I wasn't. I'm not quite old enough to have seen the best of Kevin Beattie. So so probably I go for Walkie. Nice, uh, Bamba Gascoigne or Jeremy Paxman. <laughs> Uh, again, Paxo's more my era, I think. And and I do know, I have friends who work, used to work with him at the BBC and say he's a really lovely man. So that's that's what I go for. Oh, nice. Uh, okay, last one. Nudge, nudge or wink, wink? Uh, definitely nudge, I think, sadly. Yeah. So, Richard, you studied law at Cambridge, which is fairly intimidating, if I'm honest. But um... I didn't study it very well. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me feel slightly calmer. <laughs> So before that, or even after, what was your first ever job? And then how did that lead into what you might remark as being your first proper job? Yeah, so um, I guess, you know, in terms of my first proper full-time FTE job, it it was in media, which is my background. And I guess you asked me about Richard Shotton versus Rory Sutherland. I think I I share um, aspects of my background in the industry with both of them in that I started in direct marketing as Rory did and I started in, in, in the direct marketing division of a media agency and, and Richard's from a media background as well but um, in terms of you know I'd done law at university as you say um, I decided midway through my studies that actually a career in the law wasn't really for me um, but I was doing quite a lot of media related stuff at university so um, like university radio and things like that and uh, and decided I want to get into the media industry but actually I discovered this 
idea or this job of media planning, which I'd never heard of before, which seemed to combine the kind of research and analysis you do in law um, with with media, and, and wanted to go into that. But it was at the time, and this was in the year two thousand. It was really hard to get into that industry, and and a lot of uh, interviews I went to basically said. Uh, You've got a law degree from Cambridge. Why do you want to come and work in media? It's a fair question. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. And it took me a while to work out a good answer to that one, to be honest. <laughs> and so for the first year after I moved to London from university, I was, I was desperate to come suffering, to be honest. Um, I, um, I was temping and I worked in a whole raft of really bizarre and unusual administrative jobs, perhaps the most unusual of which was working for the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Um, and <laughs> in the examinations department, believe it or not, but I'm, I'm pleased to say it was the written examinations rather than <laughs> anything else. Um, and uh, and yeah, and so so in terms of my first proper job, that was that was one of the first was, was doing various kind of filing and temp work um, for for about a year before I actually got my first my first job in a media agency. Amazing. Um, it's, it's interesting actually. You you reference obviously Rory and Richard there, but it's interesting. Um, that starting point of direct marketing tends to, I don't know whether this is just a, a bias at play here, but, I've, but there seems to be quite a few people who have, who have come in via that route. Yeah, well, the way I talk about it in my book, actually, is to say, I think I noticed a similarity with that as well, in that it, it seems to be for those of us who have a interest in the use of behavioural science in marketing in particular and communications, um, direct marketing is a bit of a gateway drug I think you know, there's a quote from David Ogilvy, not that I compare myself to him in any way, shape or form, but but this quote from him, which he said he, he described it as his first love and secret weapon, I think, direct marketing, because ultimately, you know, direct marketing is is the clearest uh, articulation of the, the job of marketing, which is to sell stuff um, and to, to, to make sure people actually, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning about I say or how I start my book that if you're in business you're in the business of behavior and what I mean by that is that you know in in terms of marketing unless you actually get people to buy the products and services you are selling you're not achieving a successful outcome for that business you're not generating revenue for that so you know the goal of advertising and and, you know if you read David Ogilvy's books for example he's very clear about this the goal of advertising is to sell the goal of marketing is to is to sell products and and in direct marketing what you're doing you know, I, I describe it as being the most behavioural job I probably ever had in that we would run an ad um, and, you know, it was up to us as the media agency to decide where to run that ad and to place that ad and to negotiate the rates for it. And um, and there would be a call to action on that ad, which we would then allow us to directly attribute the success of that ad um, on where we placed it. And, you know, and I, I started predominantly working in print advertising, so I was doing the analysis on, you know, we ran a an ad of a certain size in the Daily Telegraph on this day. This is how many phone calls we got as a result. And, you know, and then we would run experiments based on that. So we would say, okay, you know, if it ran earlier in the paper, was the response rate higher? If we made the ad bigger, you know, does the additional cost, is the additional cost of that paid for by the additional response we get from having a bigger ad because it's more noticeable, um, et cetera, et cetera. And and it was a real shock to me when subsequently in my career, career I moved into a do more brand based work where you wouldn't have a call to action on the ad. So I'd ask the question about how do we actually know that this has worked? And then someone would say, oh, we have brand tracking studies to assess that. And then I'd look at these brand tracking studies and they go, oh, uh, someone saw the ad <laughs> or, you know, more um, more directly, it would say um, or more. It would be someone claims to have saw the ad, seen the ad, but we had no way of knowing whether they saw it or not. Um, and that was how our success was was measured, rather than actually did it have an impact on the sales of that particular product or service. But there is a lot more, um, I suppose, ambiguity in brand tracking. And, I, and I'm someone who who um, you know rallies for a lot more brand focused activity in most instances. But but you're right, the um, being more frontline, I, I suppose, in terms of to an acquisition, direct marketing has, has I would suggest, a, a much clearer idea of, of uh, success. Yes, yeah, so, well, and I think the point is, is that 
Um, it's not to say you can't measure the success of brand advertising and that it doesn't perform a role. It does perform a very important role. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the metrics that you use, just because something is easy to measure doesn't mean it's the right thing. To and that's that's the critical thing. And and what we now know, and this is really the value for behavioral of behavioral science in marketing, in my mind, is that it gives us a better understanding of how marketing and advertising works. And it also um, gives you, then allows you to focus your efforts on the right tools and the right metrics to understand exactly what, what the role of that is. And, and, you know, and if you're very clear, if you are working in, in brand-based uh, marketing, then, you know, if you're clear on that, then it will, it can only help you deliver better work. Yeah, I love the idea you, you remarked um, or at least referred to direct marketing as the gateway drug. I think that's a, <laughs> into uh, behavioural sciences. So you mentioned the book there. Um, and if you are in business, you are in the business of behaviour, as I said in the intro. What made you want to write the book? Yeah, well, it was a, it was a combination of things, really. Um, one was that um, I, having worked in behavioural science or applied behavioural science for a number of years now, starting initially in communication. So, you know, I, I, I sort of got introduced to it working in public health communications here in the UK and doing um, some of those scary ads you might remember from the mid noughties that persuade you not to smoke. So people with hooks in their mouths and stuff like that. You know, it, it, it sort of, that sort of piqued my interest and in the understanding of, of how this can be applied to solve some of those societal problems, if you like. But then when I, when I went on to work in private sector, I realized that actually those models and that understanding that behavioral science gives us around how people behave and, and what drives people's behavior are not being used uh, or, or, or being used in a very kind of um, either superficial or not very um, rigorous way. And, um, and you know, there's one of the things I say in the book is that, you know, we've learned more about human behavior in the last 50 years than we have in the previous 5,000. And, and that's because it's a relatively new discipline. You know, the discipline of psychology as a, as a whole is, is barely over 100 years old. So, um, and, you know, behavioural science and, and the, giving us those new and better models of human behaviour is quite a new thing. And, um, and yet uh, it's been adopted and applied, if I'm honest, more successfully and in a more widespread fashion within the public sector than it has in the private sector. And so, you know, one of the reasons for writing the book was that, was to simply say, look, we, you know, we've achieved these amazing things using behavioural science in the public sector. There's a lot businesses can learn from that. And there's a lot of work that, that uh, people have done, in, including myself, I think, that, that you know, demonstrates that. And then, and then the other aspect of it as well, which is really important, is that, is, you know, I sort of was seeing a lot of parallels in terms of the successful application of behavioural science. And I use the term behavioural science rather than behavioural economics because, you know, one of my obsessions, I suppose, is, is that um, it needs to be treated like a science. And that means you need to experiment with it and you need to test things to find what works. Um, is that um, your businesses, the most successful 21st century businesses in particular, you know, when you look at the likes of the Google and Facebooks and Amazons and Netflix, you know, what has driven their success has been as much about understanding human behaviour and then testing and learning and iterating from that, you know, adopting a scientific approach as it has been technological innovation. And, and one thing I've noticed with businesses in general, um, but particularly true in marketing, I think, is that we do get, tend to get obsessed with the new shiny thing, you know, the latest technology and, and, and you know, and, and adopt that in a slightly uncritical, unthinking fashion sometimes, whereas actually, you know, what hasn't changed um over millennia is, is human behavior and the drivers of human behavior and so um you know unless you have that understanding you're never going to be able to apply it successfully so so the two things i guess in in summary that, that, that led me to re, to write the book were firstly you know there's a lot we can learn from behavioral science that helps businesses and helps them achieve better outcomes and the second is that that whole approach of testing and learning and iterating you know is something that's fundamental particularly if you look at you know the most successful startups uh, of the last 20 years or so. Um, and again, businesses are often not willing or able to adopt those kind of processes and, and to test and learn in that way. Um, so those are two things. The other reason why was, was I was asked. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, so we, we, yeah, I mean, genuinely, you know, it, it, the book wouldn't have happened without without Richard uh, Shotton in particular, because um, his book, The Choice Factory, which I know, Richard, was, I think, your, your first guest on this podcast. He, yeah. 
did did very well and it's a great book and um and when I met up with Richard he said oh look my publisher are interested in publishing more on behavioral science and, and he kindly made the introduction so that's the the other reason but I idea kind of you know germinating for a little while I guess ah very cool yeah we went to Richard's book launch actually at Ogilvy oh cool yeah, very good, very good. Uh, there's a couple of really good points you've made there. I've been scribbling frantically over this side, um, and I won't, I won't hit you with all of them in one go. But I, I, I firstly, really, really like your uh, point on it being a, a science, behavioural science, and not behavioural economics. And that idea of testing things is so key in across all of marketing, not solely in this space. And without giving too much away about the book, it does begin with a discussion on undoing economics where you talk about governments being perhaps more forward thinking in their approach while businesses lag behind. Do you know why that is? Is there, did you, did you come up with any reasons as to why that's the case? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, oh, it's difficult. It's difficult to generalize, I suppose. And, and to be honest, you know, as, as I think we're finding at the moment, you know, there's plenty of things that governments do that do still seem to defy logic, but there's um, yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of factors and this kind of goes back to the point I was making specifically in relation to marketing about the difference between brand marketing and direct marketing for example you know when i worked in government um everything we did was was had less focus on changing behavior um because you know that was how we could justify frankly spending taxpayers money um you know we we had to uh write you know papers and rationales to the nth degree to say this is why you know we should be investing x many million pounds in a campaign to help people quit smoking um, because and that all had to be underpinned by saying it is going to have an impact on the number of people who are smoking in the United Kingdom and um, otherwise it just it just wouldn't get approved you know there'd be questions asked in parliament and so on and so um, it, you know that that level of justification needed and the fact that you know the, the, the sole goal of those initiatives you know, particularly in an area like public health is to change behavior it means that you know, you're naturally going to gravitate towards those um, disciplines which give you the frameworks and the understanding of what changes behaviour and the best practice around that. So, um, so we were we were very focused on that, and I think that's true of governments generally. Is that you know, behavioural science helps us understand how and why people behave as they do. So that should be applied for challenges which are about behaviour change. And in business, there is still this presumption um, in a lot of cases where that we're not really in, in that business of behavior. We're not interested in, in, in changing behavior necessarily, as in you create a product or a service that is sufficiently innovative or sufficiently good. Um, the reality is, is obviously people are, um, you know, what behavioral science tells us is that we, you know, we are cognitive misers. We don't like to think unless we have to. We are lazy in our habits. You know, one thing we know from marketing, one of the challenges with marketing is that, you know, we are bombarded with 3,000 plus messages every day. We can't possibly hope to notice and process every single one of those and respond to them in a rational fashion. So, um, so you know, the, it's only when you when you start to realise that and you start to understand it that it, that it makes sense to, to sort of think about these problems in a, in a different way. And what um, and what behavioural science does is it helps us with that and gives us the frameworks to do it. And I think as well, to, you know, to that point about testing and learning, you know, something that is um, for a lot of businesses, particularly larger, well-established organisations, you know, there's an element of risk to that, which which businesses are often, you know, anyone who's ever worked in a large business knows that there's a lot of risk aversion. There's a lot of um defensive decision making as as uh, as you might call it in terms of people are trying to justify their position they're trying to justify the decisions they make and so um and that kind of runs contrary to this idea of continuous testing and learning and adaptation uh, but the but you know the point one of the points i make in in the book is that you know that's even more crazy now in 2020 because we have the tools we have the data to be able to test and learn and iterate in a in a relatively risk-free, fast, adaptable way, particularly with digital products and services, obviously, um, to find what works. So, so you, you know, there's no the, the arguments against doing it uh, are, in my view, not really very valid. You know, I, I, there's plenty of examples I use in the book, for example, about you know, running a simple A/B test on a website is is pretty easy to do and very inexpensive 
So, you know, if you're not doing that to try and find out what's actually going to be most effective in terms of driving sales or engagement, then, then you know, I would I would argue it's it's harder to justify it. It, it should be hard to justify not doing that than hard than justifying doing it. Yeah, I wonder why that is actually. Because in fact, to use that same example, running an A/B test on a website, I wonder if that then, in some instances, perhaps opens up another bundle of of kind of questions and things which then need to be understood because the data you might get from a, from a site if we assume the the site isn't just a, an e-commerce site for example it might give you all sorts of data which then becomes a bit of a headache to try and diagnose and understand yeah yeah I mean, it will raise more questions than it answers absolutely but but you know i mean rory sutherland who i know you've had on the on the on this podcast before you know he's a great a great quote which is test counterintuitive things because your competitors won't and, you know, the value of testing and, and one of the things that behavioral science tells us is that, you know, the solutions to a lot of problems are often counterintuitive. Um, you know, the value of that is that you're, you're finding something that gives you a competitive advantage. And, and that's, you know, in a business, that's that's all we should care about is is how we deliver that competitive advantage. So, you know, for me, as I say, it, it doesn't really it doesn't make sense not to do that. Um, as I say, it was a necessity in government for us to test things because we had to provide the evidence base to be able to then, you know, so a minister could stand up in parliament and say, we're committing two million pounds to this initiative because we've tested it and we know it works. It's in business. Unfortunately, there are a whole raft of decisions that are made where as long as the person is senior enough, they don't have to justify in those terms. True. And so, um, but, you know, but my counter argument would be, well, it's a lot easier to, to walk into a boardroom and say, we know we should be doing this because we've tested it and it works, is to go and say, well, I think this. Yeah, you're making it harder for them to say no than as much as you're making it a powerful yes. Yes, yes. And the, and I guess one of the other challenges is sometimes the answers you get may not be what you want to hear. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, and in behavioural science terms, we talk about concepts like confirmation bias, which explains that, which is, you know, people want, people give more credence to information and facts that support their pre-existing views. So we seek out, you know, we seek out information that confirms our own view of the world, and and you know that just it, it just you know creates a kind of cyclical effect, and it just gets more and more more and more ingrained. So um, you know, so it's it's quite hard for businesses to um, to try and you know, and I, one of the things I talk about in the book is is that you know it's as much a mindset shift as it is anything else. You have to recognise that testing has value for the, all those reasons I mentioned, but also one of the things you have to recognise with testing is that some things won't work, some things will fail. But actually, when they do fail, that's as valid and an important an insight for you as when things do work, because if it fails, you know you should never do that. And, you know, you can divert resources and attention away from something that's not going to work for you and focus on things that will. And and that's, you know, I you asked me at the very beginning about PC versus Mac, and the reason I hesitate for that is that, as I say, I think... I think Apple are a marketing company that does tech and, and other tech companies tend to be tech companies that do marketing. Um, you know, I hesitate a little bit because the recent turnaround at Microsoft, for example, and the fact that they've, as a business, are now, you know, have turned around their fortunes and become the largest tech company by stock valuation is to some degree what's Satya Nadella, who the, the um, CEO there, attributes it to a sort of cultural shift where they went from a, a know-it-all company to a learn-it-all company. And I think that's a really nice articulation of exactly, you know, what I'm talking about, that that they recognised that they they were proceeding on the basis of a whole raft of assumptions that couldn't be proven and were perhaps even wrong. So they went from saying, okay, well, let's let's forget what we do know and let's let's proceed on the basis of, you know, we need to test things to find out what works and, and it's it's paying off for them. Yeah, yeah, really good point, really good point. You've mentioned your time in Australia, um, and you obviously, you worked with the Australian government on their quit smoking app. Why do you think that was so successful? And are there any other nudges for good that you're really proud of? Yeah, um, so uh, the, the, the My Quit Body app, which we, we developed in Australia in 2012, and still going strong now, um, it's had over half a million users in Australia, which by my estimate, is between one in three and one in four smokers have used it. Yeah, it, it, it has it was a phenomenal success, and it's one of the things that that you know you asked me about what 
what inspired me to write the book. And it's, it's one of the, obviously something I referenced within there, but it was indirectly, it was one of the inspirations for it, in particular, this whole idea of testing and learning. Because when we developed it in 2012, there was a, the circumstances in which um, it was, and it had been already proposed by some of my colleagues when I joined UM, the agency I worked for in Sydney, um, who had the federal government account. It, so they'd already suggested some form of app. And I think, you know, part of the reason for that was that there was a, you know, apps was new technology at that point. They were, they were driving adoption first, uh, fast. Um, so there's a recognition that it could have some value. But actually, what really drove the success of it and this kind of strategic reason for developing the app was that if you've ever been a smoker, um, I don't know if you have, but... Um, yes. But yeah, okay. And it, 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 well, you don't have to tell me whether you'll quit or not, but, but you know that one of the hardest things about quitting, I'm guessing, is that, you know, you get cravings at any time of the day or night, basically. Mm. Um, and and one of the challenges from communications is that we can communicate to people to say these are the reasons you know you should give up smoking. We can motivate people, give them the willpower to quit, which is very important. Um, but actually, you know, obviously, if those cravings hit at uh, you know in the middle of the night, for example, there's not necessarily going to be any prompts around them to to trigger that quit attempt or to help them if they've already quit to help them continue to be quit and uh, uh, to continue to not smoke and the challenge is obviously quitting is very hard um people fall off the wagon um you know that by some estimates is anything between 20 and 30 quit attempts on average before someone does it successfully so um so we knew that that to have the impact required um we were going to have to help people quit successfully um but the what's the, you know so we were looking at what is the one thing that people have within arms reach 24 hours a day for help if they need it and that's their mobile phone um, it's the one thing we all have to hand now. Um, so, um, so you know, and this was even back in true back in, in two thousand in twenty twelve. So, so using a mobile was the perfect solution for it. There was also a very practical reason as why it's the right solution was that the, at the time there wasn't much money around, um, and the traditional kind of big budget advertising campaigns that had been featuring the disease lungs and so on just weren't practically possible for us. So, so we had to look at other solutions which were required a lower investment and, and on that was a good uh, was a good way to do that but what i guess what i brought to it was was this understanding of what some of these subconscious drivers of, of behavior uh, i'd also obviously been working on smoking for a number of years in the uk so i had a, an understanding of the specific issue and um and what we built into the functionality of the app was a number of kind of was behavioral nudges within it to make it more successful and to help people quit more successfully but what was really interesting about it and one of the things that that you know is particularly relevant for what i talk about in the book is that we only had eight weeks to build the first iteration of the app and the reason for that was the minister had a slot booked on world no tobacco day on a program called the project which is basically the australian equivalent of the one show so it's a prime time kind of current affairs type show and she wanted to have something to talk about so <laughs> on that <laughs> slot, so she basically said you know it's eight weeks beforehand said i've got this slot booked on tv Let's build the app, and then I can launch it on that point. And what that meant was we we basically had to adopt what's known in the tech world as an MVP approach. So, building at the minimum viable product, you know, we had to go, what can we do in eight weeks? What what can we, um, what, what functionality can we have in the app and, and still have it launched on that day? And um, and then what we did from there was once we got that launched and it got some very positive initial feedback, it also having the minister on primetime TV had really helped. Um, what we were able to do was um, was then add new functionality to it, use the data and the feedback we were getting from users to continually optimize the app. And that's why it's still going strong eight years later. Um, and that for me was a really interesting insight was to say that you know the app is was to discover that the app has been successful because we've used the behavioral techniques, but it's also been successful because we've continually tested, learned, and optimized in terms of that functionality. And, and then I, you know, I, I read a bit more about that kind of MVP approach and how, you know, the big tech companies, the FANGs, the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google uh, have been applying that. And I was like, there's a, an, in it, you know, I guess the light bulb moment was realizing there's a complete consistency between the, the correct application, successful application of behavioral science and the way those businesses solve problems. And it's the combination of the two that's driven their success and, and that, and that, all businesses, whether they're digital or not, or whether they're technology focused or not, can learn something from that.
Yeah, and also it's key to um, I'm key, I'm keen to share the fact that the app has actually been white labelled and used in governments elsewhere. So it has success is is wide reaching. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, which is great because again, you know, um, you know, if something's if something's not if it ain't broke, you know, don't fix it kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> the barriers to quitting smoking are pretty consistent wherever you are in the world. As I say, it's a it's an addictive uh, product and it's a habit forming product, so those barriers are, are pretty consistent wherever you are in the world. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Fantastic. Um, you've written a blog recently um, and it seems very topical and, and appropriate to discuss it even just briefly now. And your blog is, can we nudge away coronavirus? Uh, so I wanted to ask you, have you seen any behavioral science and, and nudges deployed since the pandemic emerged? Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, we're probably all, we've probably all seen them although we may not necessarily have been aware of them so you know in my local supermarket they've got the uh feet on the you know uh painted on the floor of the supermarket or with decal stickers on the floor of the supermarket saying you know this is two meters apart is um i've seen some of the supermarkets are basically saying it's like two trolley lengths away from each other you know those kind of nudges so you know ways of framing information that makes people more likely to behave in a in a particular way um, are being utilised, you know, uh, quite extensively at the moment. I think. Well, my local council, and I shouldn't really badmouth them, but they they chose to show that two meter distance vertically, as opposed to um, horizontally, which which I found just quite alarming. There was a, there was a <laughs> vertical banner showing me two meters how <laughs> the the distance vertically bizarre very bizarre yeah yeah and i yeah i saw it i saw an example with some um uh, atms in i can't remember which country it was in but they had some atms and they put out the the distance yeah between the two meters distance away from the atms that people needed to be and uh, <laughs> and but the thing was the atms were next to each other so they had the yeah they had the two meters distance going back from the atm so you'd be standing directly next to someone. <laughs> yeah, do, you, do you see what I mean? I hadn't staggered yeah, them yeah. so that um, it was completely pointless. So, so yeah, I mean, and I, and I guess there's a, there's a serious point there, which is around, and I guess I would say this, but, but you know, there are superficial ways in which we can use behavioural science or nudging to address problems. But unless it's done correctly and it's less done with an understanding of the science behind it, um, often that will be ineffective. And and that's, you know, I, as I say, I would say, you know, you should work with experts like ourselves to do that and for that reason. But but also, um, you know, it, it's it's not as, you know, one of my frustrations and one of the reasons I wrote that blog was some of the ways in which it's being presented that behavioural science has been applied to, to change behaviours around coronavirus. It's either been applied in, ineffectively or the way the media has reported on it is not really an accurate representation of what we're talking about. The key thing... You know, in particular, there's been a lot of coverage, particularly here in the UK, about the role that behavioural scientists have been playing in the government's response. And I should say, you know, we at BVA Nudge Unit are not involved in the UK government's response. We have been working with the French government team there, and we're also doing some work with the Italian government as well. But in the UK, we've not been involved in that. So that's been, as I understand it, led by the behavioural insights team, who was often colloquially called the, the Nudge Unit. So that's where the confusion comes from, I think. But the um, but we are working with a lot of clients, um, public and private sector clients, on, on what they're doing around it, and and the um, you know what I say in the blog is that you know problem of coronavirus is not going to be solved by behavioural science alone. You know the the main way it's going to be uh, resolved is through medical science. It's going to be through virologists and um, epidemiologists. And in particular, a vaccine is going to be the thing that, that long term solves the problem. What behavioural science can do and where it where it should be applied and where it can help with the problem is with the behaviours that we all need to be adopting to limit the spread of it and to um, make sure that we're not um, you know, that we're you know, flattening the curve as it as it's being termed. And um, and that's where behavioural science really has value and in, in, in terms of, of helping with some of those challenges. Some of the that have been suggested around issues like behavioural fatigue and, and the, the lockdown measures and, and how long they should be in place for, those are more controversial and there's by no means a kind of consensus of opinion in the behavioural science community about what 
the right approach is. And and so one of the reasons I wrote that blog, to be honest, was a little bit um, self-serving in terms of saying, <laughs> you know, if if people think whatever the, the long-term outcome of what we're going through at the moment, if behavioural science gets the blame for, um, you know, the the spread of coronavirus in the United Kingdom, that's not fair from, you know, is, is my viewpoint on it, because um, we're not, um, you know, there's not, it, it's a group of, nothing against the, the behavioural insights team on the large unit, I know several people who work there and do amazing work, but it's not necessarily a consensus that what they're doing is best practice in behavioural science terms, or going to be yeah, the best solution for us as a society. Um, but what I do know about ways in which we can encourage behaviour, particularly in, in public health, and you know, and, and you know, with things like making sure people are staying two metres apart, you know, potentially nudging them to you know to stop touching their face or or wearing a mask or whatever the behaviours are that we need to adopt, and um, and that's where we can help. We can't. Long story short, we can't come up with a vaccine. <laughs> No, no, that's a, it's a key distinction to make. Yeah, and and you know, and it's it's like anything else. You know, we we you have to recognise what you do know and what you don't know, and what's uh, and where the limits of um of the application of these these um the application of the, the science are, uh, and um, and that's 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 really what I was trying or guessing at with that. But having said, that, you know, there's lots of work we're doing, as I say, at the moment with I've been doing some work uh, for an organisation which is. You know, trying to encourage its customers to interact with them in a different way because you know they can't go to physical branches anymore, for example. So, so helping with framing of those messages to make sure that actually people understand and 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 respond to that message in the right way and start you know using their online services rather than trying to go and visit a physical branch. Those are the kind of things that we're doing to help businesses in in, this, in these unusual times. Yes, very unusual. Um, you do you have a favourite behavioural challenge that you've that you face? Because because you, I mean, it's very varied. You've worked on obviously uh, getting people to stop smoking, joining the armed forces, drinking spirits rather than wine, bizarrely, uh, paying for uh, university tuition, submitting taxes. I mean, there's so many. Do you have a favourite? Oh, it's really difficult to say because I guess you know one of there's there's um one I should say with the, with my book you know it's not just what I think I interviewed um people like Richard Charlton and, and Rory Sutherland um for the book so so it's it's got lots of quotes from from experts in various fields and what one of the uh, one of Rory's um quotes that he's actually quoting Richard Feynman the um the famous physicist and he says I know. He says, I don't know much, but I know everything is interesting if you look at it closely. And which is a really great quote, I think, because it, it does show when you look when you get under the skin of behavior, and that's this is what I really fascinates me and why I, I love doing this work, is that is that everything's really interesting in that sense. So when you look at any behavior, even something that appears quite mundane, that when you when you unca- unpick the the drivers and barriers to that particular behavior, you get some really interesting interesting insights and then some interesting solutions as a result of that you know dealing with something like how getting people to pay their taxes on time you know that actually when you look at the drivers of that and why people aren't whilst taxation let's be honest is not a fascinating topic in itself <laughs> you know that when you look at the reasons why people will, will behave in a certain way or, or won't and it's, it's it's really interesting and there's an example that i quote in my book which um which is around an experiment the bit did about how you get people to to pay their taxes on time and um you know what they found was that if you if you sent letters to people saying that a um people in their local area in a very very specific local area so down to a kind of postcode level said um uh ha- were submitting on time that really motivated people to submit their taxes on time so the kind of social norms effects of saying people around you submit this on time makes people go oh okay i don't want to be a bad neighbor i better do the same and or i don't you know i don't want to be unrepresentative of these people i live with but but the but actually then when they digged a bit deeper they found that was true of the majority of people but for really high value taxpayers it wasn't motivating at all in fact um and to, to motivate the high value taxpayers what you actually had to do was to tell them where their money went and what they what they're spending their money on and that was more motivating to them so so when you dig deep into these issues that you know that's when you get to the really interesting stuff 
I mean, it, you know, they're really, um, but then, you know, there are some issues you, you work on, which are, are fun and interesting because um, they're particularly relevant to your own life, I suppose. So um, we did a project last year for a railway company and it happens to be the railway company that I use to commute or I used to use to commute <laughs> via. And, um, and that was about basically getting the trains to run on time. And, and in particular, how, um, how we could stop passengers behaving in ways that delays the trains. And that was really fascinating for me. One, because I, you know, I commute via that service. So I'd seen some of the behaviors that we're talking about. And two, because, you know, if we did a good job, I'd personally benefit from it. (laughs) (laughs) Degree, But, um, but actually, again, as a behavior, it was a really fascinating one because, um, you know, some of the, some of the behaviors you see, like, for example, one of them was people pressing the emergency alarm um, when it's not an emergency alarm or when it's not an emergency situation or they think it's an emergency situation. You know, I remember hearing a story as part of our research for that where there was one of the drivers said to us, um, oh, yeah, I the, one of the, the late services on a Saturday night is an express train. So it doesn't stop at a particular station. But there's a group of lads who always go out together on a Saturday night and they've worked out if they press the emergency alarm at a certain point, effectively it will stop at their station so they can so they can get off the train there. So they were basically using it as kind of a request stop type thing. Wow. <laughs> group of lads. And the driver said, I'm, I got wise to their game because what happens is when you press the button is you speak directly to the driver through the intercom. And uh, he said the one night they did it and I went, not tonight, lads, and just carried on. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's wonderful yeah so that kind of stuff is 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 you know is is really fun i think yeah oh that's fantastic i have a couple of listener questions for you richard sure so asking the general public for their opinion be it on brexit or boat names is notoriously fraught with danger but that's not stopped us asking um so we have i'm going to lead with a <laughs> with a daft one but it but it could lead into something more interesting so so mark who is uh, one of our copywriters he's asked is there any conceivable way we could nudge ipswich town further up the loop <laughs> well do you think if i hadn't worked that out i wouldn't have tried it <laughs> but is there there must be a place in well, you know numerous places in in sports broadly speaking yes yeah, and and there's a there's an example I quote in my in the book, which which was a really painful one for me to include because it relates to our bitter rivals, Norwich City. And, um, yeah, and there's there's a concept I don't know if you're familiar with this. Um, uh, there's a there's a brilliant uh, academic. He's actually an Australian, but he's based in New York called Adam Alter, and he um he wrote a book called Drunk Tank Pink. And the idea behind Drunk Tank Pink is so one of the things that behavioural science tells us is that our environments can have a big influence on in our behaviour um and more than we realize and there's um what they've discovered is there's a there's a particular hue of pink which they call drunk tank pink which is uh, a particular pantone that what it has is a kind of testosterone lowering lowering effect so um they call it drunk tank pink because they painted drunk tanks and prisons and things in this color to to stop violent behavior basically um or to make it less likely to happen because it, it lowers testosterone and um and so what Norwich City did um, in the season they got promoted last season from the championship was they painted the away dressing rooms at, at Carrow Road, Road, their stadium, in this drunk tank pink. Um, wow. And they won the division comfortably. Now, not so you can't say that that was purely the, the, the only reason for it, obviously, but um, but I thought it was a really interesting case study. And there's there's some, been some other, uh, uh, other sports teams who've tried to do the same thing. Um, I actually asked Adam Alter about they had an issue with um, in Australia with the rugby league, the NRL, which is the premier rugby league competition in Australia, where the referees, they, they, they signed a new sponsorship deal for the referees and um, that they had to wear pink uniforms because it was the branding of the, the brand that was sponsoring them. And after a season, the referees said it completely undermines our authority. Um, we're finding the players and just not listening to us and, and, and not obeying our instructions. And, um, and I asked Adam Alter about this via Twitter. I said, you know, do you think this is a, an example of what you've written about? And he said, there might be something in it. So it's, it's, um, so those kind of things are interesting. And yeah, exactly right. There are, you know, the, one of the things I do touch on in the book, which businesses can learn from, I think is that there's a lot of ways in which sports psychology has transformed 
the fortunes of a lot of teams now and a lot of sports. And I'll, if I'm honest, you know, it was something I wanted to write more about in the book, but <laughs> as, a, as a sports fan, but it was more that, you know, that uh, I you know, didn't want to detract focus away from, from the business side of things. But um, one, one example is that, you know, um, the England football team now regularly use, use sports psychologists. Um, and in particular, um, podcast actually to, not to recommend another podcast while I'm on here, but um, Bruce Daisy's podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. He did a great interview with, uh, with the, the, England, the England football team's psychologist about some of the things that she's done to, to help them improve. And, and Gareth Southgate in particular is a, is a huge fan of using psychology to improve the performance of the team. And, and when, it, when, you under, when you listen to what they've done and how they've, how they've applied it, what it fundamentally comes down to is an understanding of players as people and as individuals at some level. So one thing they did, for example, was was they used psychometric testing to understand the personality types of the different players on the England team. And in particular, how they cope under pressure. And there's no more pressurised situation in, in football than penalty shootouts. And if you notice that, you know, one of the big differences in the England football team over the last few years has been... They've won a few. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've been able to, you know, and I, I don't I was the only one when I saw in the uh, in the World Cup that, you know, the, the key penalty during the shootout was going to be taken by Eric Dyer. And and I had my head in my hands at that particular point because <laughs> he's by no means the most, and no, no disrespect to Eric Dyer, he's obviously a very good player and far more talented than I would ever be at football. Well, I, I had my head in my hands and I'm a, a, a huge Spurs fan. So, you, you were... <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Well, even more. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, his strengths and weaknesses more than most. And he, but he was the perfect player for it, and because he's he doesn't crack under pressure, and he he can cope with that pressure. And ultimately, you know, if you look at it in terms of what a penalty is, it's scoring a penalty is, should be a fairly basic fundamental skill to most footballers because you know you just have to hit the ball accurately in a, at quite a large target. And um, but players, because of the psychological pressure that you put under at that moment, players frequently that can't do that. Um, but he's who's who's able to do that and that's why he was the perfect choice for it so long story short there's lots of stuff i'd love ipswich to do to make them more successful uh but sadly (laughs) there are probably more fundamental issues there than we can address i i was just something one interesting thing that i noticed uh, talking about that actually um that myself this season was that um uh ipswich are in the Ipswich, uh, for a relatively small team, have actually been relatively successful over the last 50 or 60 years, and um, but less so recently, obviously. And the, the position they now occupy is the lowest position in the football hierarchy that, that they've well, they've had since the 1950s. Um, and one of the things about that is that um, the, uh, um, you know, when at the start of the season, Ipswich were doing quite well in League One, were actually top of the league. And I felt fantastic about that because my team were top of the league. But consciously, I knew this is the lowest we've ever been in my lifetime. <laughs> but being top of a league, top of a low league, is better than being bottom of a high league. And that's a really, I think, in behavioural terms of understanding what motivates people's behaviour and what makes people happy. That's a really interesting interesting. Yeah. I really like the uh, psychology around penalty shootouts, actually, in general, because I've, I mean, I've seen this shared numerous times, but I know Richard uh, Shotton is a fan of it too. The psychology around shooting down the middle, and, and that you are statistically both much more likely to score a goal if you if you shoot down the middle, but equally as a goalkeeper to save if you if you stand fairly stationary right in the middle of the goal. The the, the flip side being, you look like a bit of an idiot if it doesn't go in or you don't save. There's definitely psychology at play there too. Yeah, well, it it goes back to that point we were saying about defensive decision-making. You you shoot down the middle and goalie saves it, you look like an idiot and you're going to be ridiculed for the rest of your playing career potentially. Whereas you you take a good penalty and the goalie saves it, you can say, well, there's not much I could do about that. So, yeah, it's a really, psychologically speaking, it's a really interesting point because, you know, as you say, the data suggests that the place you should shoot when you take a penalty is down the middle. Our second question, and actually you can point fingers at Norwich here potentially, but Lisa has asked, behavioural science 
in is sometimes questioned in regards to the ethical issues of shaping people's behaviour. Do you think there is a line that can be crossed ethically and is it easily identified and avoided? Mm, very good question. Um, very important, and a very important question. It is something that, that, that I talk about in the book quite a lot. It's a complex one. Yes, it is. It is, absolutely. And, you know, often one of the things that's often you know, thrown at me, to be honest, in terms of the work that we do, is um you know where does where does it stop being nudging where does it become manipulation and i think you know one of the critical points to to mention is the reason we call it a nudge rather than a shove for example where i would differentiate something from being a shove is that you know the critical thing about nudging is that it needs to be um in the interests of the person being influenced and um and and in particular um need to retain an element of choice about the action if, um, you know, when we talk about smoking, for example, we talked about earlier, you know, um, we created an app to help people who wanted to quit smoking. And so, you know, we were fulfilling a need that those people had and a desire that they had, which was and an outcome they wanted to achieve, which was to quit smoking. So, you know, it, from an ethical viewpoint, I don't think you could really argue that it was the wrong thing to do. You know, I mean, I've had people throw at me in the past that, that um, you know, that anti-smoking communications in general is removing choice from people and and it's you know it's nanny state etc etc but you know my counter argument to that is to say well between 80 and 90 percent of people at any point say they want to quit cigarettes so you know what we're doing is facilitate facilitating something that people want to achieve and the reason they can't achieve it is as i said earlier it's chemically addictive it's incredibly habit forming and it's incredibly harmful so you know i don't i don't really I don't think that argument holds water for that reason. And by the same token, when we, the work that we do, the ethical standards that we apply, uh, a BVA nudge unit, we talk about win-win-win situations, which is basically where if we are successful in achieving the outcome that we're trying to achieve, which if we, if we, the behavior change we achieve, we want to achieve is, is, is achieved, if we're successful, then it needs to be a win for the organization who's doing the nudging, because obviously why else would you do it? It needs to be a win for the individual, so they're achieving an outcome that's better for them in some way, shape, or form. And it also needs to be a win for society at large as well. So, um, you know, when we're talking about, uh, we're doing increasing amounts of work around things like sustainability, for example. Most of us want to behave in ways that are going to be to the long-term benefit of the planet and to to, to address issues like climate change. Um, it's obviously in the interest of organisations to achieve those outcomes as well. And, and, you know, and, and and then also, obviously, there's a very obvious societal benefit by doing that. So um, so those are the, um, you know, that's the criteria that we apply. In, in my book also, I reference Nir Eyal, who um, has a good um, sort of test, which is to say, look, if I were being influenced in this way as an individual myself, I'd be comfortable with it. Uh, and then also, you know, if it's, um, if it achieves the outcome that we want, you know, with the person being nudged, say that it's been better for them as well, um, which is quite a simple way of looking at it. So, so I think the ethics of it is really um, is really important and something we address, uh, or it's something that I try to address in the book, and particularly in the context of you know um, some of the recent scandals around the work that Cambridge Analytica were doing and so on, and the use of data and the use of the you know the fact that the the user experience of of a, something like Facebook, for example is using an, a lot of behavioural techniques to encourage people to use Facebook as much as, as as they possibly can. Now, you know, that's because Facebook's business model is based around having users who spend a lot of time on the, on the platform. Is there a problem with that? Well, I'd say in some contexts there are, particularly if they're using people's data without consent or they're, um, as, as was shown in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, also, you know, Facebook as a product, there is quite a lot of evidence that social media can be quite harmful and damaging, particularly in terms of mental health. So, um, so yeah, there are questions, there are important questions to be asked about something like that. Most of the work that we do, fortunately, you know, the, the benefits are fairly obvious and it's not, we're not, you know, one thing I would say about nudging as opposed to other things that, that we, we can, other ways in which we can influence behavior is that critical to to nudging is that the choice stays with the individual they still have the option to behave 
different way than the one we want them to behave in. And because um, if you're not, if you're removing that, that's not a nudge. Because then if you don't have that choice element, it's not it's not nudging by definition. So, and that's why for me, you know, it's um, it's about the ends rather than the means. Yeah. Yeah, well answered. Well answered. There's a lot of murkiness around Facebook and just their use of data, Cambridge Analytica, and you know what, what their intentions are. Um, but I think that clarifies it. I think actually, though, you could still point a finger at Norwich because I'm not sure if the changing room is in the interests of the uh, teams changing within it, and if that element of choice remains unless they get changed. <laughs> <in the team. laughs> That's very true. It's very true. Um, you know, is it the spirit of the game? Would be the question that I would ask about that. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, as as we know, it didn't really help them this season anyway. <laughs> no, 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 this is true. This is true. Bless them. But I think there's an important point there is to say as well, and this is relevant to the coronavirus conversation. You know, what we're talking about in most cases are are incremental gains or marginal gains. So you know, Norwich painting their dressing room away dressing room pink is not the thing that won them the championship last year. It was one of many things, you know, the most important of which was they had the best players in the division probably, was, you know, it was one of many things that helped them achieve that success. And when we're talking about use of behavioural science and nudging, you know, it is that we're talking about incremental gains and marginal gains. Um, that's one thing that's been really important to me and, and something that I've discovered through my work is that, you know, businesses, effective, effective businesses are always in trying to find those marginal gains and behavioural science is a great tool to so the final part of the interview then Richard is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests uh, question one is what advice would you give to your younger self uh, well that's a really good question um, because uh, well there is a there is a without going too much into the heuristics and biases of behavioral science there is a thing called hindsight bias uh, which is that you know we tend to Things, things that obviously do always look better in hindsight. And I guess, you know, it, you know, on one level, I would say, well, maybe I shouldn't have spent so much time thinking that law was a good thing for me, um, as we talked about at the beginning. But on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of important skills and that I learned from studying that, I think, which have been really helpful for my career. So, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult one. Um, I think I probably, I think most people say this, I probably would have said to my younger self, try and have more fun. <laughs> which I think is not that I didn't have fun when I was younger, but there were certainly <laughs> things times when I I didn't when I when I could have done. So I think that's um, that's probably my advice. Nice, that's great advice. Good advice. If you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Is our second one. Oh, that's a really good question. I would say one of my big bugbears, and I think um, this is you know bought out by by what we were talking about earlier in terms of testing and learning and the importance of that is is one of the, my biggest frustrations when I worked in the agency world in particular was that we were continuously reinventing the wheel you know in terms of every time we were planning a new campaign we would assume that you know we were assuming we were the first brand to ever try and advertise shampoo on tv and the reality is you know when I talk about behavioral science and and being scientific in the approach, you know, testing and learning is one part of that, one critical part of that. But the other is that, you know, there are, there's a lot of good science out there. And, you know, when I, in the, the section on marketing in my book, I, I talk about, you know, the, the evidence base we've now got from the discipline of marketing science and the work that Byron Sharp and others have done around what drives um, purchase and, um, and the, the, the role of marketing in that. Um, and, you know, so there's a there's a great wealth of knowledge and experience and evidence out there that we should be learning from and we should be applying. Whereas, you know, I think it's a, there's a real bias in the industry to to reinvent the wheel, to assume that, um, you know, that there's no existing knowledge that we can we can apply to a situation um, and that that we have to be endlessly innovative. Um, you know, there's a few experts that I interviewed for the book um, who who talk about, you know, the drive, Kate Waters, who's the uh, director of client strategy uh, at um, ITV. She she talks about how, you know, the awards focus within the marketing industry and the, the importance we place on awards um, is quite damaging because 
um, it's constantly driving that that need to be innovative and to create groundbreaking work, but groundbreaking work in terms of being flashy and innovative rather than being effective um, in terms of actually getting people to buy a product. And in a lot of cases, you know, there's a whole raft of associations that already exist with a particular brand that you simply just need to leverage in a slightly different way rather than completely wipe away all the work that's previously been done on that brand and start from scratch. Um, so, you know, and using existing brand assets to, to deliver that. So I think that's, that's the thing I would, I would eradicate is this constant search for novelty um, as opposed to effective effectiveness. Yeah. It would be great if we could rid the industry of that. Mm. <laughs> um, aside from the behavior business, which we are going to link to, and um, I couldn't praise it highly enough. Are there any other books that you you would recommend to our listeners? Well, thank thank you for that. Um, um, yeah. Um, I mean, I think you know we've mentioned Richard's book, Richard Shotton's book, um, uh, The Choice Factory. Uh, Rory, obviously, we've mentioned as well. His his book Alchemy is brilliant as well. You know, I I I hesitate to direct people to some of the kind of key texts around behavioural science because some of them are quite academic, if I'm honest, and get get. Thinking Fast and Slow is possibly the most important behavioral science book that's that's ever been written, but it's also the least readable. Um, you know, apparently the Kindle data says that says that only seven percent of people actually get to the end of it. So, um, you know, so it's 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 not an easy read. Um, but um, but there are other books which are, I think, really engaging and um, and interesting and and help uh, and and give people some some really useful practical um, tips on, on how to use or the value of behavioral science in addressing business problems. Dan Ariely's work in particular is really good at this. So predictably irrational is, is probably the one of his that, that's that's most helpful. Um, also um, The Art of Choosing by Sheena Iyengar is, is a great book about how people make decisions and how we how difficult we find it to choose. And then, you know, and then books relevant to, to, to marketing in particular. There's some, you know, great books on 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 behavioral science in that context, like Decoded and uh, Choice Factor I've mentioned already. Um, have you I think you've had Phil Bond on the podcast? Yeah, Phil was on recently actually. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, so so yeah, yeah, I'd recommend those. Uh, also um Ian Pritchard, who I think you've had on as well before, and Ian's mine from from Australia. Um, his books are very they're they're they're, they're probably less um what's the word uh less they're def- definitely less academic not that he is an incredibly well-read and 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 bright man uh or that he you know he tends to pepper them with lots of references to punk uh and um and uh popular culture and things which which is it is a lot of, uh, it makes it a lot more fun so um so i'd recommend ian's books as well yeah, you know, Ian's an incredibly smart chap. Lovely bloke too. He is, yes. The, the final question then, or it's, it's, I suppose it's less of a question, is, is we always like to dedicate each episode to someone and we bestow that honour to our guest who has to give the reasons why. So would you kindly do the honours? Oh, well, that's a really tricky one. So I, I guess, you know, as I said at the beginning, that I had, um, had difficulty choosing between Richard and Rory because they... Um, you know, in many ways, they're responsible for me being here, uh, Richard, in terms of, you know, the book and then Rory, for, um, where he wrote the forward for my book, but also, um, you know, he's been a huge inspirational figure for me in my in my career. But the third person, actually, I mean, I'm going to be a bit cheeky here and then ask if I can dedicate it to three people. So <laughs> <laughs> We've had two before, never three. Yeah, oh, okay. Let's do it. So those, no, two, no, let's do it, do it. those two, and then the other would be Kate Waters, who I mentioned earlier, because what she did, um, or, you know, I worked with, first worked with Kate when I was um, uh, at the Department of Health about uh, nearly 15 years ago. And um, and she was the external strategist we brought in to inform what we were doing on, on the tobacco campaign, on the anti-smoking campaign. And she, because she had a background in psychology, brought a whole load of concepts from social psychology for that. And that was a, you know, made our work, my work in particular, you know, much more effective. But B, um, you know, really piqued my interest in the world of behavioural science and, and understanding, wanting to learn more about it and, and to, to, you know, kind of shape the direction of my career in that sense. Um, so so those would be the three people. So uh, Richard, Rory and Kate would be my three choices. Great, okay. 
Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Richard, Rory and Kate. Perfect. So, Richard, as as our final call to action, everyone listening can head over to the podcast calltoaction.co. We'll share links to everything discussed, primarily the Behaviour Business book, all of your other book plugs. Um, how else can people get more Richard Chataway? Um, yeah, well, thank you. Um, so, yeah, so obviously, the, aside from the book, there is a podcast associated with the book as well, um, which is basically um, the recordings, the interviews I conducted for the book um, or excerpts from those. Um, so if you're interested in hearing more from people I, I interviewed for the book, then, then please look up the Baby Business podcast as well. Um I, uh, yeah, um, uh, BVA Nudge Unit, we're particularly at the moment, whilst we're all still in lockdown, we're doing quite a lot of webinars around relevant issues uh, related to coronavirus, but just behavioural science more generally. So, so do go to bvanudgeunit.com to find out more about what we're doing. Um, and, and our UK website will tell you about stuff we've been doing specifically in the UK. Um, and I'm on Twitter at uh, rich underscore chataway as well. Perfect. Well, all of that will be listed on this episode. So thank you so much for joining us, Richard. It's been um, an absolute pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it and review the podcast. We really value your support. Keep guest questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch with us, it's easy to find GASP online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah, hey, hey.